with us this morning. You know, periodically people will ask me, uh, so what, what is grace all about? What does it stand for? What, what is your goal here? Uh, they say it and they ask the question in, in some different ways, but, but um, they're, they're all after the same thing. And usually what I will tell them is that Jesus uh, said in John 14, something very interesting. Uh, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So friendship with, with Jesus is uh, sort of conditional, isn't it? You're my friend if you do what I command you. And then he went on to explain, uh, as, he, as he boiled down all of the commands uh, into this simple statement, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. And then a little bit later he said, and teach others to become friends of mine. In other words, teach others to obey all the commands that I've given you. Those commands, love God and love people. That's, that's what we're about here at Grace, and that's why we open our Bibles every week, um, not just to learn more about the Bible, but to understand how we can do that better, those two things better. Love God better. Love people better, because that's what Jesus commanded us to do, and he said if we will do that, we will be his friends. So that's what we're about here. We're going to dismiss our kids at this time uh, to go to their Sunday school classes. Um, And they are going to be learning actually about one of those truths, one of those commands. Um, They're going to be learning about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, Or you might say the parable of how to be a neighbor. Um, You can read that story or ask your kids uh, when they're done. Uh, later today. In here, we started a new series last week uh, on the letter of James. Uh, And I I mentioned last week, this series could be tough because James doesn't pull any punches. Uh, And he he got right to it uh, last week, and and he's going to continue to uh, this week. Uh, His letter is this series of, of practical commands, not necessarily really in any order, uh, but they're uh, a bunch of practical commands that teach us how to live the Christian life. Uh, some of you are familiar with, with James's argument that faith without tangible evidence, without works, is really no faith at all. And of course, that's why I've called uh, this series Faith That Works, because unless all of these gears are, are turning together, um, faith doesn't work. And it's really no, no faith at all. Uh, as we go through uh, James's letter each week, I'll have the verses up on the screens and you can follow along that way. You'll notice if you look around, a lot of people have a paper Bible of some kind or maybe a Bible app uh, that they use to follow along as well. Uh, if you're here this morning and you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible but you don't have one, our ushers are coming down the aisle right now and if you'll just signal them somehow, they'll put one in your hand and you can uh, follow along um, that way. Um, before we jump into this uh, next section of James, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Lord, as we come to your word today, uh, we ask really three simple things, but three things that we believe will uh, transform us. And that is this, what we know not, teach us. 
what we have not give us and what we are not, please make us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me invite you to turn to James 1 again. Uh, That's on page 974 of the Bibles that the ushers uh, handed out. And just before we look at at today's passage, I want to do just a brief review of last week, in in part to remind us, in part, uh, if you weren't here, to kind of bring you up to speed. We looked at the first four verses of, of James last week, and, uh, and, he, and he talked specifically about how we should view hardship in our lives. Uh, all people have, have hardships uh, or trials in their lives, uh, and ultimately, we have three choices for, for how we are going to respond to those hardships. Uh, the first is to uh, sort of go ostrich or, or, or turtle, right, when we, when we face trials. We can deny it, right? We can pretend that everything's just fine, right? It doesn't really bother us that much. And I think all of us know that's not really a very good option uh, because ignoring things like that, stuffing things, um, doesn't help us at all. Uh, and I think most, most of us recognize that. Uh, another way we can respond, maybe over here on the other side, is to get angry about trials, about hardships, um, to, to become even maybe bitter about it. Uh, but we know, as, as we do with ignoring it, that's not going to make it go away. Bitterness and anger isn't going to make the trial go away, and it's not going to make us feel better about it. That hardship or trial isn't, isn't you know, by you being angry at it and go, oh, well, he showed me, right? No, it's just going to keep persisting, and we're going to get more and more angry and, and more and more bitter, and actually we'll become emotionally and maybe even physically very unhealthy. So, so this isn't a good option over here. Ignoring it isn't a good option. Uh, getting angry and bitter about it isn't a good option. And so there's a third way. It's the way that Jesus and and James and Paul and Peter and the writer of Hebrews, uh, as we saw last week, all call us to. And that way is to view those hardships as an opportunity for God to do something down inside of us, to do a work that, that shapes us more into the likeness of Jesus. And so I really believe as we consider those three options, there's only one of those that makes any sense, right? And, and I realize at first glance, it can seem like James is sort of calling us to this lofty ideal, right? To have joy in the midst of trials. But it isn't a lofty ideal. It's, it's the only one that makes any sense to us. At the end of the passage last week, um, verse 4, James says that if we do this, we will become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Remember that? As we move into verse 5, James uses the word lacking again, right after it. So he says in verse 5, now if any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God 
who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to you. Now, I know that last week's message was hard. Several of you told me so as you left on Sunday. Some of you with tears in your eyes. Some of you didn't have to say anything. I could see it on your face. It was hard. Talking about having joy in the midst of trials, especially the trials that some of you are facing. Um, Some of you talk to me about the trials you're facing. Having joy in the middle of those? That's a hard teaching, isn't it? And so many of us are, are, are left wondering, how in the world can we do that? Well, it turns out that's the question James is answering this morning. So if you're asking that question from last week, you're in the right place this morning. James begins by identifying a need. There's something lacking. What is it? Wisdom. James doesn't come right out and say you're all dumber than a box of rocks. But he knows that what he has said in verses 2 through 4 is hard. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. We want to believe that the way to joy is to avoid trials, right? And so James says, you may need some wisdom to understand how to do this, right? Comes right on the heels of his teaching on having joy in the midst of trials and becoming mature. You need wisdom for how to do this? He's going to tell us. So first of all, what is this wisdom that James is talking about? I think it's helpful again, and we're going to do this through the series. Uh, It's helpful to remember that James has been strongly influenced by his half-brother, Jesus, particularly in his Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was giving instructions for how to live uh, life in the kingdom of God that, that Jesus was ushering in. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a story about a wise and a foolish builder. Some of you remember the story, right? Uh, most of us, I think, may miss what Jesus was teaching in that story, though. We hear the story and we sing the song about the Wise and foolish builders, right? And, and then when the storms came, one of, one of the houses, wise man built his house on the rock, foolish man built his house on the sand, and then the storms came, storms of life came, and one house stood and one house collapsed, right? And so the moral of the story, of course, is, um, I think the, the, the last verse is, so build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Build on, on the rock, who is Jesus. Well, that's, that's kind of true, but that's not what Jesus said. Very specifically, what Jesus said is, everyone who hears my words, so he's, this is the last thing, he, this is his conclusion to the sermon, right? This is the last thing. Everyone who hears my words and does them, it's like the wise man who built his house on a rock. But everyone who hears my words and doesn't do them is like the foolish man. Sounds very much like a section in James that we're going to look at in a few weeks. See, James's whole 
uh, or Jesus' whole sermon was about how to live life in God's kingdom. And at the end of the sermon, he says, it's the wise person who does it. And so I was thinking this week that, that the wisdom, really, that Jesus taught could be defined as living God's way in God's kingdom. That's wise. Live God's way in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus spent three chapters uh, talking about in Matthew 5 through, through 7. And James is writing to a group of new Christians who are trying to live in a world that operates nothing like the kingdom of God. And he says, you're going to need wisdom to do that. You think maybe we could say the same thing about ourselves today? I mean, anyone else feel like we're, we're living in a world that operates nothing like the kingdom of God? Yeah. And so we're going to need wisdom to know how to do that. So that's the first thing that, that we see here in verse 5. We need wisdom. Right? And then James tells us how to get it. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God for it. And James gives us a few reasons why we should ask God. First reason isn't directly stated here, but I think it's implied. Uh, If we are to ask God for wisdom, what does that tell us about God? It tells us he's the source of wisdom. He's got it. We don't. We go to him, right? Uh, This is what uh, uh, the Bible teaches all the way through. Daniel 2.20 says, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to who? Him. Uh, Job 12.13, Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are His. Proverbs 8.14, Counsel and sound wisdom are mine, says the Lord. I possess all understanding and might. So, so James says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. First of all, because God is the source of all wisdom. It's who he is. It, it's it's uh, part of his character. But then James gives us some other reasons for asking God for, reasons, uh, for wisdom. Um, and and the, the reasons he gives... Uh, I, I think should, should give us boldness, really, in asking God for wisdom. He says that God gives to all generously. God loves to give wisdom to people. He delights in it. And again, I think James may have had Jesus' uh, teaching in Matthew 7 in mind when he writes this. Uh, where Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. And then he goes on to say, who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Of course, the answer is no one, right? If you then, Jesus says, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God loves to give good gifts to his children. And wisdom is one of those good gifts that he offers to us. Okay? So God's the source of wisdom. 
He, he gives generously. Thirdly, James tells us God never criticizes those who admit that they need his help. God will never say, oh, for crying out loud, if you use your brain, right? Why do you got to keep coming to me to fix everything? God doesn't do that. God will never say that. He won't even ever think it. It's not who he is. The writer of Hebrews said that we can boldly approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So friends, I want to tell you, we can boldly ask God for wisdom because A, he is the source of all wisdom. B, he is generous to give it. And C, he'll never ever criticize you for asking. So in verse 5, just as we're getting started here, James answers a couple of questions for us. What do we need? Wisdom. How do we get it? Ask. Sounds a little bit like a a chant at a protest rally, doesn't it? What do we need? Wisdom. How do we get it? Ask. Sorry. Well, uh, things turn a little bit when we get to verse 6. Because we discover that God's answer to this prayer is actually conditional. Uh, James says, but you must ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Such people must not suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord since they are double-minded and unstable in all their ways. So maybe, maybe a hard question here for us this morning. How many of us have ever had doubts? I have. I mean, over the years, I've, I've wrestled with a lot of questions about God, a lot of questions about the Bible, about faith. Is, is James saying that disqualifies me or any of you who have ever had doubts? from asking God for wisdom? I don't think so. Uh, It's interesting. The Apostle Paul uses the same word for doubt that James does uh, here in verse 6. He uses it in Romans 4, where he says, Abraham did not waver in doubt about the promise of God, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. He was fully convinced that what God promised, he was also able to do. Paul says Abraham did not waver in doubt about the promise of God. Was was Paul unaware? The answer is no, but rhetorically here, was Paul unaware of the fact that Abraham did in fact doubt God at least once when God said to Abraham at a hundred years old that he would father a son and that his wrinkled old wife long past her childbearing years would be the mother? In that story, it says that both Abraham and Sarah laughed. It says Abraham fell on his face laughing. 
Is that believing in the promise of God? doesn't sound like it. I think Paul's point is, is not that Abraham never entertained a doubt about God's promise, but, but that Abraham over many years displayed consistency in his faith and trust in God. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote a book. It's titled, I Just Love, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's what James is talking about. He, he's not saying that if you've ever doubted, you can, you can just forget about God answering your prayers. What he's teaching is, is that God responds to us when our lives show this basic consistency of, of trust in God. Right? James uses a metaphor to, to make his, his point, a metaphor for the doubter. He says that they're like the waves of the surging sea, driven by the wind. Uh, my very first time out on the ocean, I, I think I was 17, 16 or 17, and uh, my dad and I went out uh, on his boss's boat. I think it was about a 32-foot uh, boat, uh, which sounds really big until you're out in the ocean. Uh, we went with a couple other guys from, from my dad's work. It was a horrible day. Um, the, the captain, air quotes, of the boat was my dad's boss, uh, who, who had no idea what he was doing. Um, he had been advised not to cross the bar, and he did it anyway. Uh, he, he didn't know how to use his navigation equipment. Uh, we, we discovered along the way that his radio didn't work right or, or that he didn't know how to use it. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the seas were actually that day. All I know, oh gosh, I'm getting queasy again here. <laughs> you know, when we, were, when we were down in that trough looking, it, it was stories high, you know, and then we'd, we'd motor up over the top of that and back down into the next trough. It was awful. Um, we were somehow, I don't know if it was because of the wind and the waves or, or, or what, but somehow we were, we were blown miles off course. And the captain couldn't find his way back to the Columbia River. Um, it's the only time I've gotten seasick. I'm convinced that it's because I retched a lifetime's worth of seasickness out of my body and, you know, my body just says, nope, not doing that again. We're done. But that's what the doubter is like, James says. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they're supposed to be. They, they don't have any compass to guide them. They, they don't have any communication with the one who could actually tell them where to go. They blow off all of the warnings about going in a direction that actually will be harmful. That is until they panic, right? And then discover that their radio doesn't work. And while in in my case, obviously, we eventually made it back safely, the truth is many doubters don't. Um... Many of them perish at sea 
spiritually anyway, right? And, and James says to us that the person uh, who, who doubts like that shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. And the reason why, he says, is because they're double-minded and unstable in all they do. Uh, the Greek word for double-minded here is disukos. Um, you can, you can kind of look at it and, and figure out what this word means. Uh, it, it literally means double-souled. It, it refers to a person who is split in half. We might even say a spiritual schizophrenic. Uh, John Bunyan called this person Mr. Facing Both Ways in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, on a lighter note, I, w- I was thinking of, of Dr. Doolittle's Push Me, Pull You, right? The trouble with that is uh, this double-mindedness isn't, isn't a funny matter. It's not a light matter. Uh, Jesus spoke to this problem of being double-minded again in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. Now, now we've got to remember, James is coming from the, the position, he's writing from a position of, of devout Judaism. And so James would have recited the Shema. We've talked about the Shema. He would have recited it daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And here in James 1, he contrasts that that wholehearted devotion to God with the double-minded or two-hearted, not wholehearted, split-heart person. That person does not love God wholeheartedly. They do not love their neighbor. They don't live out the Torah as, as God intends and as Jesus taught. So, so James says that Jewish Christians, that's at least, at least who he's speaking to, Jewish Christians, like their Jewish ancestors, are to follow that single-minded trust of God's provision. And, and broadening it out, uh, James, of course, says that to all Christians. We need to be single-minded in our trust of God. And James says that the result of this double-mindedness is a person who is unstable in all their ways. Literally, this, this person's spiritual life is chaos. It's chaos. It's a mess. You know, I get to hear people say all, all kinds of really boneheaded things in my office. Their lives are in chaos and so many times it comes back to this issue. I'm not saying this is the issue for all of you, but so many times it comes back to this. And it affects all aspects of our lives. A person who trusts God and believes that God is the source of all wisdom, believes that God wants to share that wisdom with his people, that person tends to have an ordered, stable life, a whole life. 
person who is not single-mindedly focused in their trust of God for wisdom finds himself or herself wavering, tossed around like we were that day on the ocean, incapable of handling the storms of life. So you see, James isn't talking about moments of doubt that we all face, honestly, at times. He's talking about, I I think he's talking about a person who repeatedly pretends to be spiritual, uh, pretends to have faith, but really just wants to continue doing things their own way, like the captain of our boat that day. He was a pretender. He had no business being out in the ocean that day. And And he put a lot, I mean, several lives at risk by doing so. We've got to remember, James is writing to Christians here. These are people who have professed faith in Jesus. But they're not acting like it. And James says that that person's life is headed for the rocks. So it's a sobering lesson for us uh, from James this morning. I think all of us would do well to ask ourselves, Am I wholehearted in my trust, in my faith? Or am I double-hearted? Am I a split personality? Do I pretend to be a Christian, but I'm not really? I'm not acting like it. So... Let's take just a couple moments here to consider what what James has said and maybe who we want to be. Um, I'm going to make an assumption here that no one wants their life to shipwreck on the rocks, right? I mean, that no one sets out to do that. Um, People don't set out to have a life that's unstable or chaotic. Um, sometimes it looks like it by the way people behave. You think, they, they, they got to be doing this on purpose, right? But really, if we're honest, none of, us, none of us do that. No one would wish that for themselves. And so if we don't want our lives to look like that, if we don't want our lives to be chaotic, if we don't want to be like that boat adrift on the surging sea, If we don't want to be spiritual schizophrenics, what does James tell us? First of all, he says you need wisdom. If you're here this morning and you can't admit that, that's a real strong indicator that there's a deeper problem. If you can't admit that you don't have all the answers, (laughs) you're in trouble, right? You're like my boat captain. So you've got to admit that you need wisdom. We have to acknowledge our need. That's the first thing. Second, how do we get it? We get it by asking God, who is the source of wisdom and loves to give wisdom to his children freely, generously. Some translations, I think it's the King James says liberally, which 
People aren't comfortable with that word anymore. But God, in this case, God's a liberal. Okay? Um, and he doesn't criticize when we ask. So if, you, if you've got this mindset of God as this sort of cosmic bully or, or, or killjoy that just loves nothing more than making your life miserable, you're probably not going to be open to asking him for wisdom or, or anything else, right? So we get wisdom by asking God. And then thirdly, we have to ask him with this single-minded, single-hearted trust in God, believing, really believing that he knows what is best and that in the process, back to what we saw last week, in the process, he is working something in us to make us fully mature. It almost seems like wisdom and maturity are are synonymous here for, for James. Fully mature, fully wise in the process, making us more like Jesus, who's the only person who surpassed Solomon in wisdom. That's what the Bible says. Well, that's the message from James this morning. Okay, let's pray. Lord, uh, believing what we have read this morning, uh, we confess our trust in you. We confess that you are good and that everything you do is good. And when our lives are full of hardships and trials, we pray that you would help us where we say we believe and then at the same time say, but help us in our unbelief. We trust, help us in our lack of trust. Help us to trust in your goodness and faithfulness. And may we turn to you for wisdom and how to live out this journey of faith. We're grateful for your promise to give that freely. In Jesus' name, amen.